Well, again, I'll say good morning to you all. Happy Fourth of Independence. It has been a year, over a year, since I've had the opportunity to be up here and lead us in the Word of God. I'll let you interpret what that actually means. <laughs> but I will say it's an honor and privilege and I'm humbled. And let's go to God and ask him for his help. Lord, we need your help. We thank you for your spirit. We need you. We ask, Lord, that you will stir us up by way of reminder of your great ways, of your high calling, and our joy of serving you. Be honored, Lord, we pray. Amen. On July 2nd, 1776, the Second Continental Congress voted to declare independence from, the, from Great Britain with this proclamation. The Unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The 56 men of that Continental Congress, most of them whom you've never heard of, took the step of moral courage that day to attach their name to a document that if thenceforth things go poorly, they would die for such actions. And while the war for independence had already started, it now was officially pronounced. It was official. And what precipitated from that day by these 56 men had implications for every single person in the colonies. Now it was up to each individual to make their decision. When the Hessian or British troops came to town and knocked on your door and asked, where do you stand, with us or with them? Are you a Tory with us or are you a rebel with them? Well, to answer that question is easy, isn't it? Now it is. <laughs> but in the moment, it would have taken great consideration you would have had to weigh up the cost to make your stand with the redneck colonies over and against the mighty, mighty British Empire. And this is what makes history so wonderful. It's so clear now, isn't it? So obvious to us. So much so, it's hard to imagine how anyone could struggle with that question or ultimatum. Starting today and moving through the rest of the summer, we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah in specific chapters 6 through 12. And next week, we'll start in on chapter 6. But my goal today is to prepare you to hear God speak powerfully through this 3,000-year-old book. But it is interesting as I've looked at it in that there is nothing new under the sun. 
For as we look at the book of Isaiah each week, we'll see variations on the same ultimatum, the same question that was put forth to the colonists 246 years ago. Will it be us or them? Answering a now to a question posed back then is so clear and obvious that you barely have to think about it, do you? And my hope is that Isaiah will teach us the same lesson as history does. That we'll see throughout Isaiah that individuals all the way up to whole countries will be faced with the same kind of question. And Isaiah puts it from God's perspective. He wants to say, God is asking you, are you with me? Are you with the world? And when you are faced with this question, this day or tomorrow or the next day, to live for Jesus in his cause and in his ways, well, I hope the answer is obvious. How could you choose otherwise? But as anyone who's active in the fight against sin knows, it certainly isn't that easy. So why don't we turn to Isaiah chapter 1, and we'll be reading all of chapter 1 into chapter 2 for our word from God this morning. And as you turn there, I do encourage you to turn there because we're looking at lots of verses this morning. The very first part of Isaiah chapter 1 sets up really what the whole book of Isaiah is all about. So if we grasp this section in summary, we'll have a good bearings on going forward in chapters 6 through 12 starting next week. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he heard concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people, do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, Who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am very weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. 
Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges at the, as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her, in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The word of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war no any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you know anything about Isaiah, you know it's a big book, a daunting book of 66 chapters. And there is some complexity in reading it, no doubt. But through this big book, I think the point, the main point of Isaiah is rather simple. Years ago, I did a Bible study on Isaiah and the teacher laid out a message, laid out the message of this book with one simple rubric, borrowing from Charles Dickens, that Isaiah is really a tale of two cities. The cities of Babylon and Jerusalem are the most important cities in all of the Bible. And these cities play a significant role here in Isaiah, both figuratively and literally. And what I mean by that is that these are indeed actual historical cities in the book of Isaiah. You see there in chapter 1, verse 1, that Isaiah is from Jerusalem. And as you read on, especially later on in the book, you'll see Babylon all over the place. 
but they also represent something beyond their literal cityness. They represent opposite ends of what a city could be. They are archetypal cities that the Bible keeps putting in front of the reader with this main question, which city do you want to live in? Now, when posed with that question, of course, our mind goes to things like, well, where are the best jobs, the most affordable housing, the best schools, the parks that we can take our kids to? But when the Bible asks this question, it's asking a more existential question, a soul-searching question. When you associate with a city, you associate not just your geography, but something about the very essence of who you are. Now think of someone you might meet who says that, hey, I'm a, I'm a lifelong Bostonian or bored and bred in the Big Apple or the Windy City. You immediately, your mind immediately starts to build a character set of that person because of his or her association with that city. Well, the same is true here in the Bible. The character sets for these two archetypal cities of Jerusalem and Babylon couldn't be more different. So you have Babylon, It's the place where the humanist dreams are made of, or attempted at least. You may remember Genesis 11 when they got together, the people of the world got together and tried to build the Tower of Babel. Well, on that site is where Babylon the city would become years later. Babel and Babylon can be used interchangeably throughout the Bible. It's the city where, if you remember from Genesis 11, the people came together and said, we want to make a name for ourselves. We don't want your name, God. We can do it in our name, do it on our own, for our own glory. So Babel, or Babylon, epitomizes the self-centered human dream. It's the place where humans are in control. The place that they're trying to build a better world with their power and their efforts, determining their own future. And then you have Jerusalem. The great city of King David, hence called the city of David, and oftentimes called, especially in Isaiah, the city of Zion. It represents God's dwelling place with his people. It's God's city. It's a city where people come together to give all glory, honor, and power, not to themselves, but to God and to live his way. So two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. One devoted to humanity, the other ruled by God. One me-centered, the other God-centered. And these two cities are also images of really two ways to live, one with the self at the center and one with God at the center. Now, when you put it this way, I think it's rather clear on where we should take up our residence, right? Clearly, we should reside in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, to choose Jerusalem, is to choose God. But that's the problem as we begin the book of Isaiah. As the book opens up in Jerusalem, we see the problem when Isaiah talks about and describes Jerusalem throughout. So if you look there in chapter 1, verse 4, Jerusalem is a place that's so bad that it's laden with iniquity. So bad that the children, innocent as they should be, are corrupt. Or verse 23, it's a city where the princes, the leaders of the city are now thieves. And the fatherless and the widows and the oppressed have no hope. Verse 6, it's a city when talked about in bodily terms, from the soles of their feet to the top of the head, there is no soundness, reasonableness, or godliness found in it. 
And therefore, as he says there in verses two and three, when you look at even the dullest of the farm animals who know where their sustenance and safety are, how could Jerusalem be so dumb and so stubborn to spurn her maker and provider? In other words, Jerusalem's walls have been infiltrated and Jerusalem now looks like Babylon. And it's not just because the city went secular all of a sudden. The religious practices of the day were strong. Temple attendance was up. Giving was at an all-time high. But don't be fooled. It's all corrupt, Isaiah says. It's an attempt of sleight of hand to fool God. So you have there in verse 11... Sacrifices are made to offer false flattery instead of heartfelt worship to God. There is lots of worship going on in Jerusalem, but no true worship. And there in verses 13 and 14, there are plenty of of festivals and Sabbaths to celebrate, to remember God's goodness, but they only serve to quell a condemned conscience, to cover a rebellious life everywhere else. Their society is corrupt, Their religion is fake, and it's so bad that God levels these charges. In verse 21, he likens the city to the worst of the sinners, adulterers and murderers. And to cap it off in verses 9 and 10, the lowest of the low caricature, Jerusalem is called Sodom and Gomorrah, the famous or infamous cities that everyone knew were so wretched that God obliterated off the map. Jerusalem, the city holy and beloved by God, is the city where now he's been pushed out of. So what will God do in response? Chapter 1 just begins a glimpse of what God plans to do with this issue. But in short, we see some of what's going on here in chapter 1. Verse 15, God will no longer listen to their prayers. He closes his ears. Verse 20, judgment will come in the form of war and pestilence upon his holy and beloved city. Such that, as he said there in verses 6, 7, and 8, that their land will be a wasteland and ruled by foreigners and not Jews. So in summary, we can say that the city of Jerusalem has become the city of Babylon. There are no more God-fearers, only religious hypocrites who think they can fool God. Society is collapsing all around, that Jerusalem will be destroyed from the inside out. And as Isaiah moves on chapter by chapter, we find that God will soon allow Judah and Jerusalem's enemies to come in and be destroyed the city from the outside in. As one person says, this is the main point of Isaiah 1 through 39. Jerusalem has become defiled and therefore doomed. But there is hope. Look there at verse 25. The mighty hand of God's anger is indeed upon Jerusalem, but notice what is happening has a dual purpose, judgment and refinement. See, refinement means that God isn't through with Jerusalem. He hasn't given up on his people yet. And this is an act of grace, actually. And then if you go on in chapter 2, you'll see a picture that Isaiah paints from God of what Jerusalem should and could be. Look there at verses 2 through 4 in chapter 2. Jerusalem could and should be a place where the nations come 
so people from all around the world could seek and find the God of Israel as their own God. The people of God in Jerusalem have the honor and privilege of helping these people hear from God, teaching them his law, and instructing them in his ways. And you see there in verse 4 that Jerusalem will be, go from a war zone to a fruitful, bountiful plantation for the world. In other words, there is hope after all. So, which city do you want to live in? A Jerusalem that looks like Babylon, which is the focal point of God's anger and wrath, or a Jerusalem that is at the center of God's plans for all of creation. But God's kindness and mercy don't stop with just giving us a glimpse of what could be. He also tells us how one could get there. Because certainly this isn't just a matter of geography, of changing locations. This is a matter of changing your allegiance as demonstrated by your way of life. You change your residence, Isaiah says, by changing your way of life. Who are you with? The Babylonians or God? Isaiah says, look at your life and listen to God. You see that in verses 16 and 17. He says quite clearly and straightforwardly, stop doing evil and replace that with good. But this good is not just between me and God and my quiet devotion times, getting more of those in. This is the good that actually helps others especially those who can't do good for themselves. The path out of Babylon into Jerusalem is clear and simple. And so much so, I think maybe we're barely moved by this idea this morning. Because if you're like me, you're jaded that this actually can and will happen. That people will change, even when we look at ourselves. Now, if you were to keep reading through these first five chapters in Isaiah, you'll see that the situation is painted actually even in worse of a light than this first chapter. No one listens to God's spiritual immigration plan. No one. But thank God for his character. Or as Exodus 34 states, he is the one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We also thank God for that one verse we haven't yet put our eyes on yet. Verse 18, look down there. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God asks him to reason as a judge would sit down with the accused, fully expecting to level a punishment to the maximum. Now, we may miss the imagery here because we associate the colors of scarlet and red with perhaps our favorite college football team, and thus a good thought. But here, those colors are to be associated with blood, the color of guilt and death. But then notice there in the same verse that these colors are instantly changed, miraculously so. God takes us from scarlet to beaming white from guilty and condemned to pure and innocent. It's interesting there as you look at verse 18 that there is a statement of change, but there's actually no agent of change. How does one actually go from being guilty to innocent? 
Isaiah only gives us a glimpse of hope and he doesn't really give us an answer of how God will actually work this out. So he tantalizes the reader to keep pressing on. But the only thing we know for sure here is this, that it's the full and sure action of God and God alone to make the guilty innocent. And it's left for the reader to read on and eagerly await more. Now, just as a side note here, that the interest in finding out more to these still mysterious, miraculous, and merciful ways of God, your interest is proportional to the assessment of your own problem. I mean, if one were to read through this and say, hey, listen, I got it. I know I'm not perfect. I do some wrong things here and there. And this is a good reminder for me to stop living like a Babylonian. That person will probably doesn't see the gravity of his problem and therefore the urgency of the exit. But if one reads this and sees themselves in it, with a woe to me, a man of unclean lips, taking part of the subtle but clear wickedness of this debased city, this person stands awed and amazed at verse 18 and can't wait to find out more about how this will happen. Keep speaking, Isaiah. I know it's hard for me to hear, but I can't wait to find out more of God's ways. For those of us who are Christians this morning who have read through the Bible, we are in a position to know the answer in full, aren't we? And it never grows old to hear the same old story and prototype here. The gospel of Jesus Christ explains how God can take a stained sinner and turn her into a pure saint, a traitor in arms to a man promoting God's kingdom. But make no mistake, it's only with the self-admission of the first identity, a guilty rebel of Babel, can someone take on the second identity, a cleansed citizen of Jerusalem. And that's what verses 19 and 20 show us, that we all have a choice to make. We're faced with this question. Are you willing to be cleansed and changed to live well in God's city? Or are you going to continue to rebel and be destroyed in the world's abode. Where do you want to live? Jerusalem or Babylon? Who are you going to be for? Us or God? Someone said it this way, for those who align themselves with God's purpose, this will be life, salvation, and blessing. And for others who continue in human self-centeredness, this will mean judgment, death, and destruction. Back to 1776. The knock on the door is coming. The declaration has been made public. The ultimatum will be given. Now the decision is yours. Are you with the Brits or the colonists? Where's your allegiance? Your answer will determine your fate and the livelihood from this day and every day for the rest of your existence. Going through Isaiah will be a similar experience, actually. Reading Isaiah properly will be hard. It will make you take a good, long look at yourself with the same question. Where's my allegiance? Where do I want to live? And your answer determines the course of the rest of your life, this day, and for all eternity. Now you could try to answer 
differently based on who knocks on the door to hedge your risk. You know, the colonists come and say, hey, I'm with you. The Brits come, hey, I'm with you. But the Jews tried this when they played at religion. God knows, he sees. You could try to keep dabbling with life in Babel or Babylon and saying, I'll take this seriously later on because life is really fun here in Babylon. It's alluring, it's fun. And to give up my life here, well, moving's hard and I don't wanna do that. I'd have to change everything. Or you could cast your lot, your allegiance and your whole life in with Jerusalem. Let me leave you here with how the Bible concludes with its story about these two cities. Revelation 18. I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. He called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. So Babylon, the once mighty city, will be thrown down with violence and be found no more. Revelation 21. Then came one of seven angels and he spoke to me and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare jewel. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. By its light will the nations walk but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, I, the choice is obvious. I hope it's not even a consideration for you here this morning. And trust me, I know, oh, I know how hard it is to choose this day who I will serve, where I will live. But it is a decision each and every day that you must make and it's a decision every day that you need to make. And we keep reading the Bible to remind us that it's absolutely worth it. Cast your lot in with Jesus, the lamb, wherever you're at. Maybe here this morning, not knowing if your name's written in the lamb's book of life or if you're confident it is, but still struggle so much to completely exit Babylon, cast your lot in with Jesus in Jerusalem. Be cleansed day after day by faith in the blood of the lamb for his holy city can have nothing impure in it. And let him turn your sins day after day from scarlet red to pure white. And finally, friends, let your daily allegiance to the risen King Jesus, the ruler of this great city, Jerusalem, change the way you live, what you hope for, how you think, as he leads you triumphantly to the great city of Jerusalem forever and ever. He who calls you is faithful. He surely will do it. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a good God and that you are so merciful. Father, we do come and confess, Lord, that we love Babylon oh so much and we're sorry. We're sorry, Lord, that we dabble 
on the outskirts. We're sorry when we run to the town center. We're sorry, Lord, for not completely shunning and not looking back. Lord, please help us. Cleanse us. Purify us. Humble us. And build us up, Lord, so that we may be proud citizens of Jerusalem, following your ways day after day. Convince us, Lord, inside and out, so that we may be people outside and in to praise your name on high. Amen.